Welcome to the Attractions Group Podcast. I'm Don Helbig alongside Ryan Sir. This is episode number 44. Ryan, how you doing? I'm doing well, but you know what? It's not about how I'm doing. You're coming off of a little bit of afterglow because I heard that a bunch of people had a really good time at the ultimate coaster event is the phraseology I've heard. Tell me about uh, coaster <laughs> yeah. stock over the weekend. Yeah, Coaster Stock at Kings Island was the eighth uh, time that uh, the park has had that event. Um, it's, it's just really one of the things I think that uh, makes it a fun and, and enjoyable event for all the attendees is just that uh, camaraderie, that sense of community. You know, they've if as you come back to that event year after year, you know, you, you make more and more friends, and it becomes uh, that big family reunion more so than any of the, the you know the ERT sessions you know that you have in the morning and at night and and all of that. So, uh, you know, just, just seeing the post on social media, just everybody, you know, in groups, all the friends they met, uh, you know, that, that's what it's all about in this industry is just having fun with family and friends. And that event certainly uh, capitalizes on that. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny because, um, you know, this is what the eighth year of it, I think Does that sound right. The eighth season. So correct. this is the eighth, eight, well, eight, and then you skip 2020, right? So yeah, I had so, to skip so 2020, there's, there's, there's been eight events over nine years, I think. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Correct. So, but over the course, the first like four years or so, it was a lot of beast backstage pictures. Uh, you know, maybe Orion backstage picture. Well, not Orion in this time frame, but uh, and then it came a lot of like on social media, seeing a lot of pictures of like I haven't seen this person since last coaster stock. So uh, I see what you're saying about the camaraderie. I think that's really cool. But speaking of co yeah. camaraderie, where can people find us to be comrades of us? They can find us. You want to follow us on Twitter. We just hit our 600th follower tonight. We'll get to that in a little bit mm -hmm. here, but uh, it is at attractions underscore GRP, all your favorite podcast channels, you know, such as Apple everywhere that, uh, you know, podcasts are streaming. And also you want to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That is something that, uh, you know, we, we bring that up every episode, but we really you know, would like for everyone to subscribe. We've got a lot of fun things planned, uh, but we want to wait till the right time till we have a certain number of subscribers to, to roll a lot of those things out. But uh, uh, just a lot of opportunities uh, to, to find us, listen to us. Uh, and on our Twitter, you know, we're going to have an episode, I think next week, where we're going to take your questions. Uh, we've been fielding those over the past couple of weeks. So uh, if you're listening tonight, you got any theme park uh, related type questions, you know, tweet at us. Uh, there's a couple of posts already uh, tweeting that thread and we'll certainly add you to the list of questions for consideration. Awesome. 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 So eighth year of coaster stock. I feel like this day is historically important. Can you tell me why I have that feeling? Well, on this day, 15 years ago, and it's hard to believe it's been that long already, yeah. but uh, Daredevil Robbie Knievel, fortunately we lost him in January, but uh, Robbie Knievel uh, successfully jumped over 24 Coke Zero trucks at Kings Island. Uh, he wanted to, to kind of, uh, you know, beat what his dad had done back in 1975 when he jumped over 14 Greyhound buses, so he wanted to beat it by 10. He did that. Uh, so today is the anniversary of that event. That was so much fun. You know, one of the highlights of my PR career uh, was working on that event, uh, spending two weeks with him, you know, setting up all the different media interviews that we did. We had the satellite media tour, so he was all over the country on different morning shows for two weeks. Uh, an interesting guy, a complicated guy. Uh, you know, he was battling a lot of different, uh, you know, I think demons and things. And then it couldn't have been easy growing up being the son of Evil Knievel, mm -hmm. you know, with, with that. But uh, it was just something that, you know, when I look back at my PR career, that stands out as one of those, uh, you know, highlights, one of those memorable things that you did just because of the success it had and what it did in terms of driving awareness uh, for Kings Island, but also just, uh, you know, to have an opportunity to work with somebody like that. All thrown together in about two weeks, too. It was. Yeah, we had about two weeks to work on that. Uh, came together quick. You know, Robbie called the park. Uh, I thought somebody was joking when they said Robbie Knievel. Um, <laughs> we got Robbie you know, Knievel on like, three yeah. for you, Don. I think it's my brother. I think it's my brother joking or something. He gets on and he goes, Don, Robbie Knievel, I want to uh, do a jump like my father did in Kings Island. When can we do this? You know, and I was like, and I'm looking, I'm like, it's a Nevada phone number and stuff. So I'm like, yeah, I guess it looks legitimate. So I said, well, let me talk to some people. And, you know, we started talking and it just, you know, sounded like the right thing at the right time. That year was the transition between, we're still underway between, you know, Cedar Fair buying the Paramount Parks. Uh, there wasn't really any new capital that year. So um, it kind of kicked off the event phase, you know, for the Cedar Fair Parks. Because before that, there wasn't a lot of a different type of special events. And that started, and after that, you know, we had uh, Nick Melinda come in, and 
you know, some other things have happened since then. So that was the start of that back uh, back then. But, uh, you know, hard to believe that it has been 15 years. But, you know, a lot of ways, it seems like yesterday. In other ways, it seems like maybe 50 years ago that that happened. Yeah. I mean, I, w- I, was, I was there front and center, obviously. And you, you gave me the opportunity to interview him and hang out with him. And uh, I'll never forget that either. So thank you once again for that opportunity. That was I, I always tell these people, I interviewed Robbie Knievel, and they're like, no, you didn't. I pulled up the YouTube video, which has got like thousands of views now, you know? Thousands of views. You know, the, the fun thing about, or the interesting thing about uh, hanging out with Robbie Knievel, he was staying over at Great Wolf Lodge, right? Yeah. So they've got the, uh, the little restaurant bar area, whatever, but the entourage that he brought with him. You know, you go in there and there's the guy that played Grizzly Adams you yeah. know, was in there and, and some of these other people from, you know, entertainment and movies and, you know, uh, everything like that, you know, just all around the, the room. You know, he, he brought in a, uh, you know, an interesting group of people. Let's just say that. Yeah, I mean, and, and this this segment's running way longer than we intended it, but I think that it's worth it. But uh, so it's for those of you who weren't there, I, I pity you because, you know, I've made thousands of visits to Kings Island. Where's my commemorative day, Don? You got one for your thousandth visit. But anyway, I made thousands of visits, hands down. I was the first, though. <laughs> okay. But hands down, hands down my favorite day. No question whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and the event was not a bunch of people went out to the parking lot and you had this thing set up and he jumped. It was food vendors. It was a, a stage, live bands. It was merchandise. It was this huge operation and I tell you what, you guys kicked yourselves into high gear. Plus, you were a new team. Like you mentioned, Cedar Fair just bought the the the, the acquisition parks. So you guys had only worked together for like a year. And uh, anyway, Don, enough about Robbie Knievel. God rest his soul. Good man. Re- demons, but love the guy. Who do we have a, as a guest as a legend on the show today? <laughs> well, Ryan, our guest tonight is somebody that you and I have talked about you know, going back to just creating the idea for this podcast that we wanted to have on. And it is Mike Graham. He's the engineer and development for the Gravity Group. Mike, welcome to the Attractions Group podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, sorry we went on and on about Robbie Knievel with you in the room. That must have been embarrassing. <laughs> no, it's it's, it's uh, fantastic, actually. It's, uh, it's a part of history, you know, local history with the, obviously the dad and the son and uh, Kings Island. So it's kind of like when you have Kings Island, there's, you know, probably some type of, you know, motorcycle jumping in that in that uh, history. If you're looking for a multi-decade uh, synopsis of the park. History, you, were you there sure. that day or do you remember it? Oh, I was not have been there. Well, I I mean, for those of you yes. who don't know. So Mike obviously runs the Gravity Group, but big coaster guy, like coaster enthusiast. I've seen you around Kings Island quite a bit. In addition to seeing you around like on the IAPA mm-hmm. floor and stuff for reasons that we're going to discuss here. But um Thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Um, can we start from the beginning? How did you get involved in the theme park industry? Um, it probably goes back to probably sixth grade. Um, in sixth grade, um, my brother and I built just anything and everything around the house. Lego was very much one of the common um, you know, tools that we use to build stuff. I like to build... Um, you know, machines, um, you know, amusement rides, you name it. Uh, I grew up about 45 minutes from Cedar Point. And uh, so we were there a decent amount. Um, Around that time, I hadn't really been on roller coasters, um, but I've been fascinated by them. And so um, a few years, or in, in sixth grade, somebody told me that a mechanical engineer was somebody who designs machines. And I'm like, well, if I could do that for a living, like what else would I want to do? Like, that sounds awesome. Like, you know, architect sounds kind of cool. You know, artist kind of sounds cool, but you know, designing machines like that would be, that'd be awesome. And so, um, a few years later, this is going to date me. Uh, we were in, uh, California, we were on a family trip, uh, one of those epic road trips, uh, you know, before all of us went off to college and everything else. I was, uh, early high school, and uh, we were out with my cousins in L.A., and uh, my dad had always wanted to take us to Disneyland. And um, so this was our opportunity to go to Disneyland. And my cousins, who were also kind of in that junior high, high school range, they're like, we don't want to go to Disneyland. Let's go to Six Flags. And so, you know, I remember the commercials on the TV were for the Viper that opened uh, that year. And we were just like, oh, wow, that looks amazing. And so we ended up, you know, going to uh, Magic Mountain and uh, 
it was just kind of a light bulb. It was like, wait, this is a machine. Somebody's designing this machine. I want that person to be me. Like that would be like the ultimate, um, you know, ultimate machine to design. And so when I got back, I started, uh, um, you know, kind of had this, okay, I'm building stuff. Let's, let's build a roller coaster. And, uh, so I, you know, building a roller coaster model at that time, this was, you know, before connects before coaster dynamics. Um, so I literally went down to the hardware store, just started looking around, see what I could make a roller coaster model out of. Cause I just had this passion. I needed to build, you know, something. So, uh, I ended up finding some dowels and some poly tubing and some wood. And, um, you know, I started, you know, building the roller coaster model from scratch. Um, the, uh, the irony is the name of it uh, ended up being the Scarlet Fever, and it had a red track, and it was kind of like Magnum a little bit. Um, I made some Lego cars, and uh, then those didn't spin very well. I got into ball bearings, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so then um, right after that, I was like, okay, I've learned a lot. I really want to make another one. I want to make it a little bit closer to the Viper at Magic Mountain. And so it was probably around ninth or 10th grade I started building um, the next roller coaster model is an Aero Multi Looper, uh, actually kind of similar to Vortex at Kings Island as well. Um, ironically, I called that one the Black Plague because it was like black and and uh, green, and you know it kind of had some different colors to it. But a friend of mine, after when I was building the first one, he's like, "Oh, if I had a roller coaster, I'd call it the Black Plague after the Scarlet Fever." So I don't know how the whole disease thing came about, but um, so I was building that uh, through high school and college. That was a big project. It was about seven foot tall, uh, fully functional, uh, had little ball bearings and the whole thing. Um, you can see it on YouTube. You do search for a Black Plague roller coaster, you'll find it. Um, and then um, as I was going through college, uh, I was, you know, even in high school, I was, you know, I joined ACE, American Coaster Enthusiasts, uh, as well as Great Ohio Coaster Club um, and just started you know, kind of absorbing the industry. I had, uh, you know, the, um, the flyers from aerodynamics and, you know, I thought, you know, this would be, you know, something I really want to pursue. The more I learned about it, the more I heard things like, you know, there's a better chance being an astronaut than a roller coaster designer and have a plan B, you know, you're not gonna, you know, you shouldn't expect to come out of college and jump right into roller coaster design. Uh, that's not really something that's statistically practical. Uh, particularly to plan on. So, um, and so that was fine. I was also really interested in aviation and aerospace stuff. So I uh, ended up getting a co-op job at a, a pump company. They're actually a supplier for GE aircraft uh, down here in Cincinnati. This was up in Northern Ohio. And uh, so that was, that was fun. Um, I enjoyed that. Definitely not as much as roller coasters. Um, and then upon graduation, I actually had a commissioned roller coaster model uh, for an ice cream shop out in Colorado. And so I built that. And as I was building that, I was getting my resumes out there. And uh, it was um, in 1999 when Custom Coasters was building uh, seven rides for 2000 opening. Uh, and they needed some help. And so I had my application in there. Um, a little bit prior to that, a couple years before I rode the Raven. And that totally transformed my opinion of wood coasters and, you know, just what coasters can be. It just kind of blew my mind. Uh, and so I was like, I want to work at Custom Coasters. That'd be like my ultimate dream job. So I got hired on for that that year. Um, I helped out with um, quite a few of those rides as we were wrapping up uh, the structural uh, detailing and design uh, of those rides. Uh, I remember going up, I think one of the, uh, this is a little uh fun nerdy coaster enthusiast thing is i had my roller coaster website talking about my model but i also had some construction pictures of the conversion of jug lake to six flags and so i was going by there every week or two you know uploading construction shots and uh within a matter of week i was taking a construction shot of villain and then drawing structure for villain so it was you're just kind of mind-boggling of like i don't know what's going on here but this is pretty awesome so, um, so that was really, really cool transition, um, into custom coasters. And so, um, you know, so when I got on, we finished those seven rides, uh, and then we did, uh, the two rides in, uh, 2001, which were, uh, Cheetah and Cornball Express. Uh, and then in 2002, we did, um, Lost Coaster of Superstition Mountain, Indiana Beach, as well as, uh, Cliff's New Mexico Rattler. 
of course, most people know uh, New Mexico Rattler uh, was not finished by Custom Coasters, but it was finished by the construction team doing that. Um, and so the story there goes is it was kind of, um, you know, early summer and uh, we were essentially told, you know, we don't have a job anymore. Uh, we're going to be closing the company. And so it was a, it was a huge blow. Um, you know, I had moved to Cincinnati just a couple of years before that. Um, you know, I, I knew some people, but you know, it was, it was all kind of a new, new adventure a little bit. Uh, and so it was a really tough time. Um, but, uh, you know, Chad Miller, Corey Keeper, Larry Bill, and myself were the four engineers at Custom Coasters. And we said, you know, we like what we're doing. You know, we're confident as engineers. You know, we're not as familiar with the construction project uh, side of things because, uh, you know, that was Denise and Charlie and, and their family uh, running the you know construction side of Custom Coasters. So uh, we're like, hey, let's start an engineering firm. Obviously, our goal is to design wooden roller coasters. Um, so we went to all the different clients that we had done coasters for and said, hey, you know, what engineering services, you know, do you need around the park? So uh, we did some different foundation design, other types of structural analysis, um, you know, all over the country, really. Um, and so that was, you know, kind of a, a, a way to get some income, you know, get enough income to go to IAPA and keep keep the marketing thing going. We all had kind of different ways to to make it work, you know, from a family point of view, whether we had another job or, um, you know, just couldn't make it work for, for other reasons. So uh, it was some, some tough years. Uh, in 2004 is when we uh, started with uh, Mount Olympus. Uh, we'd been talking with them a little bit uh, over the few years about doing a ride. And it uh, turns out that 2004 was kind of the trigger there. It was like, okay, let's let's go ahead and start this ride that uh, is going to go underground. It's going to be called Hades. It's going to be amazing. So, um, so yeah, you know, definitely, uh, you know, a prop out to the Lascaris family for giving us our first big, you know, design ride. Um, and so we used the same crew that we had at Custom Coasters for that ride. And we were able to kind of use that, that crew for a few years. And pretty soon we, you know, kind of brought that crew in house, became the general contractor, uh, you know, and then we could provide a turnkey uh, ride to those who wanted that. So that was kind of the trend. Um, you know, just it didn't take that many years until we were the general contractor. So here we are in 2023, and we've got a lot of different innovations. Uh, we've met a lot of people through the industry. Um, I feel like I, I know a decent amount, but there's plenty more to meet. And but I really enjoy uh, everybody in the industry that I've met and uh, been able to hang out with. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a, you know, even though they're competitors and you know, people that not related to roller coasters at all. I, I do feel like the whole in industry is a big, a, a big family when, you know, when, uh, when somebody hurts or passes away, you know, we kind of all feel it. So, um, yeah, that's where we are today. I kind of skipped like 10 years right there. <laughs> we'll cover those later. It's fine. <laughs> that's how I got in the industry and where I'm at awesome. today. All right. Uh, the heart and soul of the gravity group is wooden roller coaster design. So where are some of the places in the world where guests can ride a gravity group coaster. Um, yeah, so in the uh, in the U.S., uh, there's quite a few places. Um, we've got uh, you know Hades 360 that I mentioned earlier, uh, which we converted uh, from Hades to Hades 360 in 2013. Uh, Kentucky Kingdom's Kentucky Flyer. Uh, we've got the Voyage at uh, Holiday World. We've got uh, Oscar's Wacky Taxi in Sesame Place in Philadelphia. Uh, Storyland's Roarsaurus up in New Hampshire, uh, Quasi's Wooden Warrior in Connecticut. Um, I'm missing quite a few uh, switchbacks uh, at ZDT at um, uh, in Texas. Uh, Tato Parks, uh, or I should say Emerald Park now in Ireland. It used to be called Tato Park, so we always used, usually just call it Tato Park. Um, so Ireland, we have two rides, actually three rides in France. Um, uh, Park Asterix, we upgraded their ride to Nara 2 Zeus. Um, Park St. Paul, which is outside of Paris, uh, their Wood Express. Wallaby in uh, Lyon's uh, area of France, uh, which is pretty close to Switzerland. Um, Sweden's Gronalund. Um, and we have about 11 or 12 rides in China, uh, Shanghai, and outside Beijing and Tianjin whole bunch of other places over there and a whole bunch that I'm forgetting about. But uh, yeah, 
we're all over the place. Uh, you know, we've, we've done a lot of worldwide travel as well as domestic travel. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, it's a unique ride experience. I think there's a bit of a gravity group signature on each ride that we do, uh, something that makes it fun and unique and different. Uh, and you know, often there's some type of design challenge that we have. Absolutely. Now, uh, you know, obviously, you know, ground up wooden coasters is what you're known for. Uh, but what you're also starting to be known for is the rehab of wooden coasters. Um, Mm -hmm. tell us about, my understanding is that the process that you're using is unique and new. Can you tell us about the process of, of doing what you can say? I don't know what's a trade secret and what's not at this point, but can you tell us what you can tell us about the process and how it came to be? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, (laughs) you know, we've always strived for innovation and so we um, we started, you know, really helping out uh, parks um, instead of just retracking the way they typically had been doing. We said, hey, let's get some numbers in here. So we go in, look at this, the actual track, you know, coordinates via survey uh, or scan and kind of say, OK, well, here's what your track's doing. Let's go ahead and adjust it, you know, almost like a chiropractor. Uh, that Don might need at some point shortly here with his shoulder. Um, and so we we kind of redefine where that path should go, uh, and we work with our tracker uh, crews to then, um, this is the traditional way to do it, to then retrack it uh, and adjust that track back to a theoretical um, ideal shape through that area. Often a park has, you know, they're retracking the same area over and over and over, and they just need to really reshape that track. And so that's been the way we've been doing it for, you know, 20 years or so. Um, and then probably about um, probably about 14 to 16 years ago, we really started you know, doing it a little bit more with the, with the numbers, um, more so a different way, but it was, you know, very, um, very helpful. And then uh, something else we introduced about uh, 14 years ago was a thing called Gravity Goop. And so one of the things that, you have for a wood coaster is you have a series of laminates and the train essentially rolls across the series of laminates and those laminates are laid horizontal to each other they're basically stacked up like a deck of cards and there's a little bit of motion between each layer and uh, particularly over time as the wood fatigues and the nails that hold the layers um, kind of aren't holding as well anymore there's some shrink and shrinkage and expansion um, and so those layers start to sag and get a little bit weaker. And so what happens there is you, we experience what we often call washboarding, where the structure supports um, are still there, but the track is kind of almost dipping between them and actually physically does dip that dip between them, particularly with the train weight. Um, what you can do to strengthen the track is add, basically kind of bond a few of those layers together. So instead of those layers acting separately as it's bending, um, they're actually uh, a little bit more solid and they're tied together and there's a lot less bend. So that's one of the things that we did, you know, we innovated, you know, maybe 14 to 16 years ago. I forget exactly when it was when we started doing that. And you actually ended up having a track that's about eight times stronger over the years. And so that was really successful. Um, However, we didn't really feel it was enough. We wanted to have something that was a lot more precise uh, then, you know, even our team, which has really, really good trackers, it still comes down to the artist, uh, artistry and the craftsmanship of that person um, to actually cut the shape of the track and also lay the lay the heights of the track. You know, we shoot them in with uh, with survey equipment, get everything as close as we can. But there's still some reliance on those on those people. And so. We started kicking around uh, an age-old idea of instead of having your your laminates of your track horizontal, you actually stand them on end. So it's just like a a, a joist of a deck. Uh, a joist of a deck you wouldn't want to put horizontal, uh, or else it would just be like a diving board. So when you have it vertical, you have something that's a lot more rigid. Um, however, um, and this is something that has been used in wooden coasters for decades. You know, like um, a great example is Camden Park's Big Dipper and Little Dipper. If you look on that track closely, what they have is they have vertical laminates that are bent around the curve, uh, and then they have horizontal laminates in the in the straights to create the the shape of the um, the roller coaster hills. Um, when you have a vertical layer, 
um, it's pretty boring because you can't bend that up and down. You're just going around a curve. And so uh, we said, hey, there's something to that. Let's figure out a way that we can utilize that uh, strength, uh, but in a in a predetermined way. So what we uh, what we created was a thing that we call engineered pre-cut track. Um, and the pre-cut track uh, kind of comes in two different varieties. Uh, one is the vertical track. Uh, and what the vertical track does is it uses that strength and then in you or as you um, are going up and down a hill, we actually cut that shape into those vertical pieces and then put them together essentially like puzzle pieces or like a rector set or Lego. And so you're creating this really perfect shape of track that's far more precise than we can you know, shoot in with our uh, survey equipment and uh, our team. And so number one, you have a predefined shape that's super strong. Uh, when it's vertical, it's actually about 20 times stronger than the traditional uh, nailed track. And so that's one of the things that's really propelling um, there's these refurbs. We also have a horizontal pre-cut. And so instead of relying on the, the guys to, you know, cut these perfect curves, you know, 100 feet in the air, upside down, uh, we actually predefine that shape and cut that as well. And so they can just lay it uh, where it goes and, you know, use gravity goop. And so you have a really, really great track. Um, great example here is right on the beast. So beast first drop is the vertical track. It goes up and down, uh, really smooth, hits the tunnel, starts twisting and curving. We switch into the horizontal track, which is all pre-cut. And so you hit that nice curve um, that uh, our engineer Brian Cosmac kind of reworked um, and just had a really great, you know, you know, that whole section of beast feels so good and so right. Um, and so, you know, it's all, it's all based off numbers and our engineered pre-cut track. We started that in 2019. We had a test section of horizontal and vertical on Kentucky flyer. Um, and it's still doing absolutely fabulous today. Uh, in 2020, we had, um, I forget how many jobs, uh, and then COVID hit and, um, it was a bit tough cause we couldn't travel. And, uh, it was really a godsend that we got the racer project because, you know, we could, you know, not travel out of the country. We, we had, we, we kind of worked up to, um, as far as we could, we had a team over at park Asterix doing uh, track work. We did, you know, multiple year track work over there. So we kind of got to the point where COVID started shutting things down and we're like, okay, we got to get our guys out of there as, you know, as soon as we can. So we pulled those guys back. We started the, uh, the racer project and um that worked out really well because you know we were having to do everything with all the covid restrictions uh both travel and fabrication and everything else and so that really uh worked out well to have a pretty sizable job there and that was kind of the big the big launching um pad you know of the of the product we uh we announced that to the public at that point uh and then we also um you know announced it to uh, the industry uh, we were able to receive a innovation of the year golden ticket for the track that year. So that was really cool. Uh, and so, yeah, we've been promoting it ever since. Um, last year was a big year, about 3,000 feet of track total. Uh, we did Park Asterix and the Beast. Uh, and then this year was 10 different projects. So we did 6,500 feet of uh, total track, uh, a little bit longer than the voyage uh, in the amount of track that we put out this year. So, um, yeah, we uh, we see it only increasing from here and we feel it's a great product for, you know, for all parks that are looking for a, a, an improved solution on just doing the same, you know, track replacement that they're having to fight with every year. Yeah, it certainly has made a difference uh, in the ride experience, uh, you know, from my end riding the racer and uh, the beast. I thought, uh, you know, both of those rides, you know, last year, I think, you know, I go back to the I'm going to start with when they changed from the buzz bars to the individual lap bars. But from that point on, 1991 through today, uh, those two coasters are running, you know, better than they have in, you know, 30 plus years. I agree. I concur. Well, appreciate hearing that. And we do think about you, Don, whenever we touch the racer. <laughs> you know, when there were some little slight profile changes, too. I know when that was first being made, you know, and, and, you know, the traditionalists and that, they get a little bit upset that you're tampering with things, that and the beast. But I also tell them that, you know, these rides were designed, you know, racer 50 something years ago, the, the beast 40 plus years ago. If they were being designed today, you know, this is how it would be. This would be what, the, you know, the profile looks like. Uh, you know, you have computers now. You didn't have those back in those days. It was all done by hand calculations and things. But, uh, you know, you, you've done a lot of different projects. 
Um, so which one would you call your most challenging and why? Um, challenging, I would say um, back at Custom Coasters, the most challenging one was Lost Coaster of Superstition Mountain at Indian Beach. We had about six months to design cars, a vertical lift, and the first magnetic brakes to you know go on a wood coaster. Uh, and it was a huge amount of work to try to get that all done. Um, but I would say uh, even since then, I would say the most challenging was probably the, the Timberliner development project. Uh, you know, as we were developing cars, we knew we needed something that put less force on the track. And so, um, you know, that took, um, you know, a few years of development and, uh, you know, we were able to launch those in 2011. And uh, that right there is actually one of the key reasons why, um, you know, our tracks have been so successful, even independent of the track is the trains put about uh, three times less force onto the track um, horizontally and then about half the force vertically uh, just due to the way we engineered them. And so, uh, you know, we, we designed those from the ground up. There's really nothing else that really looked like it at the time. And uh, that was certainly a big challenging process. Uh, process. Um, we had the lost coaster cars under our belt, but that was kind of a one-off uh, oddball train. So um, we saw the need and uh, we jumped on it and, we knew it was going to be uh, you know, a lot of unknowns, but uh, we feel like we, uh, you know, really created a great product that, you know, we can have, you know, Corey Keeper, he's six foot six. He can ride with a 40 inch high kid, you know, next to each other, completely safely, completely enclosed, um, plenty of airtime. So, you know, those are some 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 challenging constraints to have when you're designing a, a particularly a wood coaster train where there's a lot of tradition and you know, kind of minimal restraints and uh, minimal electronics monitoring, all those kind of things. Awesome. And then what was your other question? I forget. Uh, no, you, you answered, yeah. you know, just talking about what was okay. the most challenging and, and why. And uh, so, yeah. But uh, speaking of, you know, different gravity group projects, uh, the one, obviously it probably wasn't the only one this year, but the one at least locally, that's the most well-known is, uh, you guys did a huge rehab job on the Grizzly at King's Dominion in Doswell, Virginia. Tell us a little bit about that project. Yep. Um, yeah, that was uh, another uh, uh, primarily uh, Brian Cosmack project. And uh, the park wanted to uh, essentially put some money into it so that it would last um, you know, longer than the traditional tracking that they had been doing. Um, as we started getting into it, we're like, hey, you know what, there's a little bit more we can do a little bit, you know, like the thought we had with racers, like, hey, let's go ahead and, you know, uh, kick this up at least a little bit of a notch, uh, just to add a little bit more excitement, uh, kind of piggybacking or piggybacking what Don said, you know, if if they had our tools, then, this, you know, the, the ride might turn out a little bit different. So um, in this case, you know, one of the things that we observed was uh, that standard design. Uh, was used at multiple parks, and in case of Grizzly, um, it ended up with uh, probably between a 10 and 15 foot amount of structure at the bottom of the first drop. Um, going back to you know early design days at Custom Coasters, it was always you know take your drops down as far as they could go, uh, and so in this case, we're like, yeah, let's go ahead and take that first drop down, um, let's sculpt it a little bit so we get you know airtime everywhere. So as we were looking at the different sections. Uh, we said, okay, let's go ahead and enhance this, uh, smooth this out. Uh, they're having some uh, track issues, acceleration uh, issues, um, structure issues, things like that. So we go in and do our engineering magic, and uh, Al Pop's a perfect coaster. No, uh, not quite, but it's a lot of work. Um, and so, yeah, that we did uh, a huge section of that ride. I think it was somewhere around a third of the ride. Uh, we have a new track on there, and that's all a combination of uh, – vertical and horizontal engineered pre-cut track on that ride. So uh, I know when Brian had his first ride, he was like, this is this is really fun. This is really, really, really good. And so uh, he's like, yeah, I rode it like 15 times that day. So uh, he's actually going down there this weekend uh, with his family. So it's, it's, it's a cool thing. You know, yeah, we're designing coasters, but we're really designing the experiences and the memories. Um, you know, when we, when we launched Kentucky Flyer, uh, we actually, you know, took some of our company people, whoever wanted to go down for media day. And uh, my youngest daughter, uh, who was four at the time, uh, she was actually 42. She's really a giant. Um, but uh, she was plenty tall. And uh, it was great having my family down there for media day because it was a family coaster. It was designed for 40-inch height requirement. 
And uh, I find out like the end of that day, I find out that it was actually take your kid to work day. And I had no idea, but I was like, I think I won. I think that's like probably one of the best take your kids work today or work days ever. So that was really fun. Um, and then also the experience like uh, uh, at Coaster Stock, uh, my family joined me after my talk. And um, that same uh, daughter, she's eight years old now. She was able to ride Diamondback for the first time. And it was like, you know, everybody can ride the big rides now in our family. And we were able to experience that as a family. And so, you know, as we have had kids, you know, it's kind of transitioned from, oh, we just like to design roller coasters to, you know, what would my family think about this? You know, you know, what about the thrill seekers? What about the acers? What about, you know, we kind of look at all the different people, you know, what is the, you know, what are the, all the audiences? I think we focus a little bit more on the audience than just the actual physical ride at this point. You know, we touched a little bit on the ride experience being enhanced. You know, you look at the beast, the racer, the grizzly now, um, besides mm -hmm. that being better, what are some of the advantages, say for the park, the maintenance team and everything of using your new pre-cut engineer track? Um, yeah, so uh, the amount of work uh, that the parks have to do uh, is dra drastically decreased. Um, when you have the correct shape, you have a lot less force into the track. And so, you know, the amount of bolt tightening and, uh, you know, wood replacement, that kind of stuff are the long-term maintenance effects of this. And so what we're seeing is just, you know, really great things uh, for the you know, reduction in maintenance. Uh, and then also, it's kind of like, if you get the shape right, you make the maintenance people happy, you get the guests happy, you get corporate happy, like everybody is, you know, happy about that ride. And it all kind of stems from, you know, getting it right. So once you get it right, all those other things kind of cascade, uh, you know, something like, um, Grizzly, uh, the park wanted us to use Epay, which is a very, very hard wood. And so in this case, um, you know, we used that on all the, the sections that we did. And so that's a lot harder the wood than the typical pine that we use. And so, uh, from a maintenance point of view, you know, there's that, that track is very, very stout and I really, you know, don't see hardly any maintenance needed for the foreseeable future, really. So it's, uh, it's pretty exciting to be able to put out a product like that where you're really confident um, you know, that the park is going to be happy. Well, I mean, speaking of good projects and stuff, I remember the first time I met you would probably was probably 2008. And at the time, you were super excited because a little ride up in Erie, Pennsylvania called Ravine Flyer 2 had just opened. Now, Ravine Flyer 2 mm -hmm. is not the tallest, it's not the fastest, it's not the longest, but it seems to be beloved by enthusiasts and people that love roller coasters. Why do you think that is? Um, it's a really unique, special ride. And, uh, about five minutes ago, I realized that I totally forgot to mention that is, uh, one of the rides that's around. Um, and in, in fact, this week, uh, the patriarch of the park, um, Paul Nelson, he passed away. Um, he was quite a visionary and I think his passion shows through that ride. Um, there was a ravine flyer one. It wasn't really called one at the time. It was just ravine flyer. And it went over this like two lane path. Um, and the geography of the area is such that there's this path that goes down to the state park that goes out into Lake Erie. It's a beautiful area, Prescott State Park. Um, and they had a, um, some type of covenant in the, um, I don't even know what, what that was, but they had the rights to go over that road with a roller coaster and they retained that right. And so, you know, Odessa was in the 20s uh, when that ride was was uh, going and uh, it closed in you know, maybe the 30s or something like that. So really since then, they talked about trying to do a wooden coaster or some type of roller coaster over that highway uh, was what it ended up being is a four lane highway with bike paths. So all of a sudden it went from like a 20 foot bridge to 150 foot bridge, I think, is what it ended up being. And so. Um, you have this really unique experience, you know, when you're driving along, you see this beautiful big blue bridge and there's this roller coaster flying over it. And it's just like, whoa, what is that? It's kind of like this. I don't know what I'm seeing right now. I can't quite, you know, fathom what's going on here. Um, and also when you're riding, it's the same thing. It's like, wow, I'm flying over this bridge and there's cars underneath me, you know, going at highway speeds. It's like, this is bizarre. And so, 
uh, we used the, topogra- uh, the topography of both the road and then also there's a bluff that goes from the park down to Lake Erie. So it's maybe uh, 50 to 80 foot tall of a bluff. And so we have the, you know, the ravine is, I, I believe it's, you know, technically the road is the ravine, but it's also this, uh, this slope. And so you have the coaster where we were able to use that to its full advantage. So even right near the end of the ride, there's a uh, there's a dive that starts at 90 degrees and it dives down. Maybe it's a 50 to 70 foot drop and it's almost right at the end of the ride. So it's a big surprise because you kind of feel like the ride's over and then it just kind of kicks into, um, you know, second gear. So the whole ride is a bit of a surprise story because you go down the first drop, you go over the highway, you know, you kind of curve around and then you come back over the highway, go into a tunnel. There's always something going on. And so uh, you get some really nice, uh, you know, summer night rides on it uh, or evening rides. And, you know, you see the, as you go up the lift hill, you see Lake Erie, whether it's a sunset or just out over the water, it's just gorgeous. And so there's all these different sensations going on on that ride that are very unique. And so, um, of course, you know, as coaster designers, we're like, we got to make sure that the airtime's good and the, you know, the surprises and everything else is really clicking. And so you have this really fantastic, um, you know, ride from a dynamic point of view with all these other sensations. And you really create a really special special ride you know as ryan mentioned it's not the tallest fastest longest or anything like that but it's one of those coasters train comes back in the station you get off the ride you want to get right back in line and ride it again you just can't get enough of it just so much fun yeah absolutely Uh, so so mike um what advice would you give to someone that uh, wants to design roller coasters for a living and you kind of touched on it earlier that it's uh you know it's not that easy to just walk in not a lot of people doing it but if somebody really had an interest what recommendation would you have to get involved? Yeah, uh, uh, first of all, we do have an FAQ on our website if you want to get a little bit more into uh, some of our recommendations for uh, you know college paths and stuff. Uh, short story is, if you're wanting to design roller coasters, you would need to um, probably go down either mechanical engineering or civil engineering path. Um, however, um, what we find is that when we start talking to people, sometimes they're interest is they think that's what it is but then they realize no i really like more like the the presentation the animation the storytelling of the you know the ride itself you know the theming uh or the architecture or you kind of end up being like you know i just really love how this park you know has this roller coaster set in a certain area and the whole development around that and then you also have a lot of other suppliers that um are you know what in the modern automotive industry you might call them second tier suppliers but um what's kind of cool is some of these companies they work with all the other manufacturers and so you get to be still a part of that in fact you get to be a part of more projects than just working for one company and so you get to kind of be a part of the team um for many many projects depending on how you're how you're doing that uh, there's also a lot of um you know, in the other world of non-manufacturers, you have uh, like Universal and Disney where, you know, the Imagineers and the creatives and those companies, um, you know, there's so many different projects they're working on. And, you know, I know a lot of people that have gone in there thinking they want to design roller coasters, but they're like, you know what, designing this one ride vehicle or designing this was just so much more kind of mind blowing and uh, engaging than I ever thought it would be, you know, I just thought I wanted to do, you know, ride design. I wanted to, you know, create the path of the ride. So, um, but I think some of the things that I would recommend is make sure that you're not just focused on engineering. Um, if you're going to work for a ride company, you're going to work for a small company. Uh, that's just, you know, all the, all of the companies around here are small. So, um, you know, we like to say you're going to wear many hats. You can do a lot of dishwashing. Uh, what we're saying there is, uh, the mini hats are, you know, you might be doing analysis one day and you might be trying to figure out how a part is made the next day. The next day you might be trying to figure out why the machinist made the part wrong. Um, and the next day you might be out surveying. So there's a lot of different um, variety of just in the technical uh, side of things. But, you know, for instance, you know, yesterday I was dealing with 
um, a marketing company. They wanted to do an article on us. So I was trying to, you know, use my creative writing gene and, you know, come up with some answers for them. Um, there's a lot of graphics that we do, uh, some of which is in-house, some of it's not. So there's a lot of different hats that we wear that you don't think about as an engineer, you know, giving podcast interviews, things like that. You know, that's, um, you know, presenting, you know, being a pre presenter for us at trade shows at our, at our booth or at other events. Uh, there's a lot of different things that we do. And then the other thing is, um, you know, the dishwashing, um, you know, when I started and I still do sometimes is I just, I'm drafting, I'm just doing a lot of manual drafting or programming or other things like that, that, um, you know, it kind of seems mundane sometimes, uh, sometimes it doesn't depending on what your opinion of that is, but, um, you're not going to jump into a firm and start designing roller coasters. You're going to jump into a firm and say, Hey, here's a transfer track, go ahead and, you know, get this all drafted up or modeled, uh, so that we can make it. And you're like, okay, that sounds okay. And that's just all part of it. You know, you're going to be part of a team doing this big thing. Um, but you know, some people think that the ride design path is, is what we do all the time. And that's probably like 1% of the amount of work on a project. So if you're, if you're just focused on that, um, you know, that comes, but it's not, uh, you know, if, if your expectation is that you probably want to change your expectation a little bit. Excellent point. And Good also, advice. we're also looking, sorry, we're also looking for a variety of experience. Um, you know, whenever we look at resumes, we look at what else you're doing, what, where else you worked, all those kind of skills transfer in some way, shape or form, uh, even what your hobbies are. You know, if you're a, if you're a gearhead and you're, you know, you're an engineer, we're like, Hey, that's pretty cool that, you know, you understand how things work and you can physically take them apart. Cause that's a big deal for us. Oh, Sorry, no, you're totally fine. Um, so, you know, when people think about wooden coasters and what's been developed and so on, probably the layperson would think that the technology hasn't changed in, you know, a hundred years, but uh, especially in the past 10 or 15 years, things have changed greatly. I mean, you know, RMC's doing their thing. You've got Titan Track on, uh, you know, the other side. Um, and then Gravity Group has this precision cut stuff, which is a new development. Um, talk about the future of Gravity Group and, like, where do you think the company will be in 20 years? Um, well, we've had, uh, since COVID, you know, there's been a lot of uh, capital um, conservants uh, or uh, cons, uh, what's the word of? being conservative with capital at parks. Um, and so uh, I do see us getting into more new rides again uh, shortly. And also, you know, as we innovate, like we have so many different things on the on the design board that we haven't got to yet that would, you know, either help things out or create a, uh, a twist on the wooden coaster that, you know, could be really marketable or really memorable. So I think, you know, the, the wood coasters are still our, our, our passion and bread and butter, but I kind of see, you know, some different adaptations maybe uh, on the wood coaster of what we know it today uh, versus what we might see in the future. Um, you know, uh, can't really say what those are, but those are some different uh, different ideas. I know a lot of different companies in the industry are all innovating as well. So we feel like we're we're positioned in a good place uh, for innovation, and we have a great team. Uh, that we can develop stuff uh, pretty quickly and, and adeptly. So, uh, yeah, we're we're pretty excited about the future uh, and how we're doing things. I think there's also a lot of innovation in our process that most people don't know or care about that we put a lot of effort into making it easier for us to make stuff. So uh, certainly the engineer Preka track is the uh, the pinnacle of that so far. But I see a lot of uh, those things that you know the the guest and the maintenance people might not see, but uh, you know certainly makes our life easier. Awesome, good point. All right, well, Mike, uh, we really appreciate having you on the podcast tonight. Uh, where can our listeners find you on social media, your website, uh, any other channels that you might have out there? Yeah, website uh, thegravitygroup.com. Don't forget the the, and uh, we have uh, social media. We have. Uh, uh, Twitter is The Gravity Group. Uh, Instagram is The Gravity Group LLC. Uh, Facebook is The Gravity Group. Um, we also have a YouTube channel where we're putting our stuff. Um, just, I think it's uh, The Gravity Group is the username. So, yeah, we're all over. Uh, we're not on Snapchat or the others, uh, just on the on the biggies. Um, as, a, as a company, it's a little bit um, uh, a weird space, you know, because we're not 
as much engaging, engaging with our customers as we are with our fans through social media. Um, but our customers are also our fans. So uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit of an interesting posture that uh, we take as a company um, to really cater to both uh, their customers and our fans. All right. Well, Mike, stick around because right now we have a little segment that uh, Ryan and I do every episode. It's called The Pick Six. Ryan, get us started. Awesome. So story number one. So we're going to talk about a coaster that's not Gravity Group, unfortunately, but it is innovative. <laughs> and Mike, I'd love to hear your opinion on it. Um, but the Surf Coaster, Pipeline, the Surf Coaster opened at SeaWorld Orlando last week. Uh, it seemed like it's got some positive mm -hmm. reviews. Uh, this, you know, it's kind of a B&M's retake, shall we say, on a, a the stand-up coaster, and it bobs up and down with a cylinder in the bottom. What are your thoughts, Mike? What were your thoughts when you initially saw the design? Um, I would say that I was very bandwagon. Uh, it seemed like a lame idea. Um, but after watching, uh, you know, and hearing from people on their reviews, I feel like they really they really did get a gem there. That's a, a great innovation, uh, variety, and also marketable. Um, you know, I haven't talked to Jonathan Smith, who's, you know, one of the key guys at uh, SeaWorld about that ride, but... I really think they made a great choice. Uh, it's a looks like a, a, a high capacity, very different ride experience than than anybody else. And in the Orlando market, it's really tough to have something new and different, uh, particularly high capacity in B and M like uh, the big parks. Yeah, Don, like. your thoughts? You know, I've talked to a couple of people this uh, past weekend uh, during coaster stock that had been uh, to SeaWorld and had ridden the ride. And they said that it was, uh, they were surprised it was comfortable because they thought, you know, the shoulder restraints might be a little too tight, uh, but they said there's enough room there in that. Uh, so they said they enjoyed it, you know, rode it two or three times, uh, a lot of fun. Um, you know, so I, I think they got a winner there. I agree. Story number two, Wildcat Hershey park opening day has been announced. It is Friday, June the 2nd, Mike, what are your thoughts on the work they did on that coaster? Um, it's an interesting uh, conversion. Um, I think it's uh, a, a pretty, I would say, pretty typical uh, as far as what I'm seeing so far uh, for Rocky Mountain to do. Um, you know, I think that park, uh, it's a good choice for the park, I think, uh, in general, even though I just really dislike any wood coasters being converted. Um, I think it was a good choice for the park. They needed something that was kind of next level. And I think that, uh, that ride's going to give that to them. So yeah, wish them the best. Uh, obviously it's a kind of two competitors of ours that, you know, we deal with, but, uh, we've known them a long time too. And we were kind of a close industry as well as, uh, competitors. What about you, Ryan? Well, you know, it, it's fun. It, it's very, um, coincidental that, that Mike would be on because, um, I know that there are a lot of purists out there that were showing a lot of concern when there were a lot of like Titan track projects and stuff like that, that were concerned that like the, the true wooden coaster as we know it might be dying. So it's really reassuring that there's more than one product on the market for this major overhaul stuff. And that the gravity groups is like a pure wood thing. Cause I'm sure that that alone may be something that's attractive to parks. Uh, so I, I think it's really cool. Uh, now it does look like a great ride. Yeah. I mean, you know what you're getting with RMC, but the trains certainly look good. We saw them unveiled a couple weeks ago, but yeah, I, I'm sure they have a winner on their hands. All right. So uh, next story is story number three. Um, so Walt Disney world, the star Wars galactic star cruiser, two nights for $7,000. How could they fail? How could they fail, guys? Um, it's uh, from they pause bookings for the rest of the month uh, to try to reschedule people, but it's going to close in September uh, and take its last flight. Uh, so many, many questions here. Uh, I, I think that, you know, obviously I was tongue in cheek. Uh, the price was out of the market for a lot of people that would be attracted to that sort of thing. But what do you do with that building now? You can't tear it down. It was hundreds of millions of dollars, and it looks like a freaking Star Cruiser. Uh, Mike, are you a Star Wars guy? Um, yeah, I do appreciate Star Wars, and uh, we went to Disney uh, last year, and uh, I was a little unsure. Um, I've got three girls. I've got uh, uh, 13-year-old, 10-year-old, uh, and 8-year-old uh, girls, and so we were like, okay, how do we experience Star Wars at Disney if they hadn't seen 
you know, the shows. And so uh, we started watching them and they really started, you know, getting really into them. And so um, I think uh, that kind of, you know, propelled my interest a little bit more. I, you know, seen all of them, seen the Mandalorian, all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, I just, uh, I uh, have not been a, the, the Star Wars convention style fan, just a, you know, kind of a casual fan. I've got plenty of other interests that need to have attention. Um, but yeah, I, uh, when I heard the news, I, I was like kind of wondering the same questions, like, what are they going to do with that? How are they going to maybe repurpose it in the future? Uh, but I was also, I was like, but my girls are fans now. Like, you know, how about like, you know, $400 a night or something like that, you know, something that we could still experience that, um, you know, before it shuts down. And so uh, I was like, for a hot second, I was like, how can I make a trip down there? And then I realized it's just really not going to be practical. Yeah, I think that might be the story of it. It's um, plus, you know, I, I, I don't know necessarily you know, with the star cruiser at the price point that it was at. Um, and I think se- like 10,000 was the most expensive, but that was like the suite for several people. But, you know, if you're two adults and the kid and the kids into star Wars, are you going to drop that kind of money? But, and if, but if you're two grown adults that are that much into star Wars, do you have that kind of money? No offense. I'm saying it as it is. <laughs> Don, you stayed at the star cruiser. How was that? <laughs> not a star wars fan no, no. You know? <laughs> so uh you know for me this is like okay you know it wasn't something that uh you know i would look to do or have you know a lot of interest in just because i never got into the the, the movies and you know so so for me i was lost you know i wouldn't i wouldn't have understood what's going on or what you know what i'm supposed to be looking for what it's all about just because i didn't uh didn't grow up with it you know didn't get into it uh at any time yeah, I, I could see that. And and I think that that, that might be more in, um, inducive of like the overall problem where like I've never seen a Harry Potter movie, but I'm going to risk going to Universal to ride the Harry Potter ride because I know I can enjoy it. But your statement is is a perfect example. I've seen Star Wars. I'm not really into it. Do I want to spend that much money to stay at a Star Wars hotel for two days? I, I just think that I've never seen Disney fail this quickly. You know, under yeah, I'll say all star sports. You know that that'll work for me. Like all star sports, all star <laughs> movies, any of those, uh, you know, kind of places, the pop century, any of those kind of places would be more appealing to me than than doing that. Uh, you know, moving on, Disneyland's Fantasmic. It's going to be put on hiatus until at least Labor Day. Mike, thoughts? Um, honestly, I just I don't really have any thoughts on this. Uh, I know that parks always have. Um, an interesting timeline of, of how their projects are going, you know, being on the project side of things. I always, you know, hear about pushing off things or I was like, yeah, there's obviously some, some business uh, decisions behind there and or project delays or, you know, big picture things right now. Disney's obviously going through a lot uh, of uh, restructuring and, you know, who knows what else it seems like Disney's in the, um, in the news every day about something or other. So, uh, about Fantasmic itself, really don't have have any other comments. Just kind of killing time on the air. <laughs> Ryan, you and I have talked about Fantasmic. Yeah. I mean, we both love the show. Mm-hmm. So th- this is just a Disneyland, right? Walt, Walt Disney World still has Correct. it, right? Um, so, Mike, if you didn't read, uh, well, you could easily find this on the internet. It's rather spectacular. But the dragon caught fire in the middle of the show. And literally erupted yeah. and fell to pieces. It was something out of like, uh, like a Zelda video game or something. Um, and then it just really has. They said Memorial Day originally. Now they're saying more like Labor Day. Um, and I, I imagine it's not. They're probably going to pass it off as a safety thing or something. Um, but they wouldn't continue it at the other parks if they if that was a real safety concern. They'd shut mm-hmm. it down immediately. So my thought is that the show is very expensive to put on. Maybe they're using that as a cover for a cost cutter, which I can't blame them. They have a really good excuse to do it. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Don't want to speak on their behalf. I don't know. I'm just speculating out loud. Okay. Um, here's a fun one. Uh, the story number five. Bounce Empire opens. It's the world's largest indoor inflatable amusement park. So those bounce houses and stuff. Uh, I'm terrified of them because I know the like the injury rate's really high. Um, 
but I, it's at IAPA. It's like a third of the floor. But uh, where's this at? I think it's in Colorado. I'm pulling up the article now. Yep. So uh, it's going to have 55 attractions, 50,000 square foot indoor bounce house with a 30 foot inflatable monster slide. Um, I mean, if you're going to have a world record breaking um, like theme park kind of thing, I guess that's the way to do it. Mike, you ever engineered a bounce house before? <laughs> um. Honestly, the first thing I think about is I'm glad it's indoors. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've heard a lot about plenty of accidents where, uh, you know, something wasn't anchored down properly and the wind took it and, you know, some type of injury or accident or something like that. So uh, I have some friends in the inflatable business. And, uh, you know, every time I hear something like that, I'm just like, oh, like, you know, who wasn't doing their job? You know, who wasn't operating it correctly or who wasn't, you know, installing it properly or you know, maintaining something or other. So um, I think that's a little bit like that uh, attractions industry um, connection that I was saying earlier, where it's like you hear about an accident and it's kind of like you, you still kind of feel like you're on the team uh, as well if there was some type of accident. So when I think of inflatables, yes, I do think of, uh, of injuries and accidents, um, but uh, having it indoors, um, that sounds like uh, something that my kids would be interested in doing. And, uh, you know, I, I'd feel a little more comfortable in that than watching, you know, somebody just setting it up, you know, at the, you know, whatever event and, you know, don't really know exactly what they're doing or so it seems, I shouldn't say that, but uh, yeah, so I mean, seems. I would probably honestly feel comfortable. Like if I had kids letting them play in one, but where I would draw the line is, is if I owned one, the neighbor kids are not playing. <laughs> it's, you know, because I would not want to take that liability. Don thoughts. You know, my thoughts are, and with as much as there is to do there, it'd be the perfect place to take your kids for their birthday parties. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a great fit for that kind of kind of thing, you know, birthday parties or, um, you know, little group events with kids, school groups, that kind of thing. Awesome. Excellent point. Yeah. All right, and finally, our number six in the pick six is Cedar Point Frontier Festival. It returns this week. The event brings live music, corn-inspired treats to Frontier Town, and it runs through June 18th. Uh, very popular event, and I like the fact that you know you can do something like this, and it gives you a chance to experience, uh, you know, Cedar Point in a way that you normally couldn't. So uh, I'm excited about it. Going to try to check it out. Mike. Um, growing up by Cedar Point, uh, we actually have a, a picture of, of us, uh, my brothers and I, when we were, I think three, five and seven years old, there was a caricature artist that did a picture of us. Um, and we, I remember riding the mill race and going back into, you know, frontier town and, you know, that we spent a lot of time there. And that was a lot of the, the fond memories that I have of Cedar Point is that whole area. Cause it's. It's very like a kind of an escape, you know, Cedar Point is always like when people ask me the difference between Cedar Point and Kings Island, I'm like, well, Cedar Point's a checklist. Like you got to get your checklist. You got to get your rides in where Kings Island, you can relax and you can enjoy, you know, kind of the whole area um, a bit more, um, you know, than just being thrilled. And so I think that the frontier town area has always been a bit of an escape area uh, for Cedar Point. So I'm glad that they kind of have the festival to celebrate that. Yeah, Brian? Yeah, I already have my hotel breakers booked for June for it. I'm not kidding. I mean, I, like uh, one thing that Cedar Point does very well is their festivals and stuff. And my girlfriend and I went up there about two weeks ago. And when we found out the dates for it and stuff, we we booked our hotel while we were there for it. So we'll be there. I'll talk about it on the show in June. <laughs> Yeah, it's become a staple event for them and, you know, something that guests look forward to, uh, you know, and I, and I like that. It becomes part of the, the tradition of going to Cedar Point is you, you want to do it and you're going to see the park in a different awesome. way. Cool. What an episode. We finally got Mike Graham on from the Gravity Group. All right. Mike, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Total honor. Friend of the show. Thank you so much for what you do in the industry and for being such a friend to enthusiasts and stuff. One more time, can you tell us your website, your social, things of that sort, where we can find you? Yeah, check us out on the uh, 1990s version of uh, 
advanced technology, the website, uh, thegravitygroup.com. Our social media, we're on Facebook, The Gravity Group, uh, Instagram, uh, The Gravity Group LLC, as well as Twitter. Our Twitter handle is The Gravity Group. Don't forget the the. So, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I had a lot of fun, and I'm finally uh, glad I was able to uh, actually join you guys. Well, we'll circle back and have you on again. Thank you guys so much. Awesome. Well, as Don mentioned, we're going to try to do the viewer special next week. So shoot us your tweets with questions and stuff. Uh, Mike, for the last time, thank you once again for being on. Don, thank you. Any final words of wisdom? Well, park's open uh, pretty much daily now with Memorial Day here. Go out, have some Didn't fun. Didn't want to hear your sales pitch. I was hoping for words of wisdom. Totally kidding. <laughs> Mike, <laughs> do you have any words of wisdom? I have no wisdom. <laughs> yeah, keep on riding. That was actually what... Uh, I had a handwritten note from Ron Toomer. I met him one time, wow. and so uh, that's what he. Uh, yeah, I was at um, actually when I was at, had my uh, roller coaster model up in Toronto. I met him as a special guest, and I had 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 lunch with his his uh, his wife and him, and it was a really special time. It was kind of mind blowing, you know, epic, you know, uh, celebrity. So yeah, awesome. it was really cool. Well, if we'll we'll to get that whole story next time you're on, but uh, once again, make sure that uh, <laughs> if you're listening to us. Thank you for listening, but we're much more handsome on YouTube. So search for the Attractions Group podcast on YouTube. Follow us on your favorite podcast apps, Google, Spotify, uh, Apple. How do I forget Apple? Um, And look for us on Twitter uh, at Attractions underscore GRP. Thank you, everybody. And have a good day. It's summer. Go to your local park.